So let's start with our visualization and taking refuge and generating bodhicitta. Well, then we'll go into the teachings. Uh, we have a few questions left from last session, so we'll do those first. Go into the teachings and uh, see what happens. <laughs> Let's generate our motivation. So now that we have encountered the Dharma, what else are we going to do in samsara beside practicing it? Well, there's lots to do in samsara besides practicing Dharma, especially the eight worldly concerns. And we have been involved in them since time without beginning, seeking sense pleasures, fame, respect, offerings, praise, and so on. And we've gotten all of that to greater and lesser degrees in countless lifetimes. And has it resulted in lasting happiness? Obviously, no. Okay, so that's not the path to lasting happiness. So while we're in samsara, yeah, we can either uh, practice the causes to perpetuate our samsara, or we can practice the causes to free ourselves and to free others. So there's only two choices, yeah? And they're mutually exclusive. So there, there's, you know, there's no third option of uh, well, I'll practice some causes for samsara because that gives me temporary pleasure. And then I'll sprinkle in a little bit of virtuous causes for liberation. Um, but what's the result of that going to be? Yeah, it's going to be more samsara with maybe a better rebirth, but still another temporary abode in one of the three samsaric realms. But if we practice the Dharma, then we experience happiness now and we create the cause for la lasting happiness and the realizations which will bring that in the future. 
So since we all like to plan things, and we can spend hours planning this and that, we should plan how we want to spend our time as long as we're in samsara to create more causes for future rebirths under the influence of ignorance and polluted karma or to create the causes for lasting happiness for ourselves and others. And with that, we generate the thought of bodhicitta because that's when we really examine that's the best thing to do and since we always want the best then we should continually generate bodhicitta See, this is the... You can practice samsara or you can practice bodhicitta, but there's no middle way because <laughs> you just get this. <laughs> okay, so there's some questions here. First one is... Um, are we always the best judge of our own ability? Okay, because we were talking about that last time. Being encouraged by my teacher, who had more faith in my capability, in my capacity than I did, made me attempt something which I found I could achieve after all. Okay, so. Um, this is one advantage of listening to your teacher's advice, yeah, is that very often they um, see our capabilities that we don't see in ourself. Yeah. Now, this person was very smart and listened to what her teacher said, and through that, she discovered that she could do something that she didn't think she could do. But very often, when our teachers ask us to do something that they see we have the ability to do, we think, I don't have that ability, and anyway, I don't feel like it, so stop pushing me. Okay? So the teacher... Is, sees our capability and is encouraging us, and we completely misinterpret it to mean that we're getting pushed. Yeah, and one thing we don't like is people telling us what to do. Right? 
Okay, and so then we don't listen when they encourage us or ask us to do something because we are very stuck in our old self-image, yeah, and our self-centered thought is reacting and misinterpreting what is uh, being said to us, yeah. So this is one of the ways in which we dig ourselves into a hole. Yeah. Now, sometimes our teachers may ask us to do things, and they see the capacity. But and we start to do it, and it's really hard. And we just want to go. This is too hard. Yeah. I tried for a couple of days, a couple of months, yeah, maybe even a couple of years, but it's too hard. So now I'm a failure. And then we go into another one of self-centeredness's favorite dramas. Yeah, I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. So do you see how creative self-centeredness is? You know, it it has its standard uh, dramas that it plays, but it alternates them so we don't get completely bored with the same one each time. Okay. Even though we do reruns of all of them, yeah, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But it's the same reruns. Yeah, at least when you watched I Love Lucy reruns, you could laugh the second time. Self-centered thought reruns, you don't laugh. Yeah, they're really so boring but we find them incredibly gripping because they are all about me. Yeah. If they were all about you, no thank you. But if they're all about me, whoa. Okay, so um, this person was quite smart. She, you know, took the advice and discovered something new about her own abilities. And after that, she gained that confidence. So I think next time, you know, hopefully without necessarily her teacher's encouragement, she'll be able to look at different things and say, oh, I can do that. Yeah. And so have, you know, a greater ability to evaluate her own uh, talents and then use them. Yeah. Okay. Then there's a second question, which is apparently in regards to the advice that I was given by 
um, Rilbu Rinpoche to do it yourself when I went to ask to tell him that, you know, the various people who had expressed interest in beginning a monastery with me, one had gotten sick and then this one, something happened to all of them. And so, you know, should I just give up? And then he said, no, you do it yourself. Okay, so her question was, um, it sounds to me like he was saying that it's similar to saying the Buddha can't wash off our negative karma. We alone have to do it. I am the owner of my karma, and only I alone can purify my negative actions. So doing virtuous projects alone like that is training the mind this way. Is that correct? Okay, so yeah, it's very true that the Buddha can't wash off our negative karma. Yeah, and nobody else can do that for us. We have to do it ourselves. So it's like eating, sleeping, going and going to the bathroom. Practicing Dharma is like those three. <laughs> yeah, in that it's something we have to do ourselves. Yeah, we cannot pay somebody else to do those things for us. Yeah, although it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, pay somebody else to sleep so we had more time to to do things we want without having to to spend time sleeping. But no, we got to do it ourselves. So practicing dharma is like that. Um, and creating virtue too. We have to do ourselves. We can encourage other people to do virtue. And by encouraging them, you know, we create virtue. You know, if we have their best interest in mind and we're encouraging them for that reason, then, um, you know, then that can be a way that we create virtue. But uh, best is when we do the actions ourselves. Okay. Uh, although sometimes in order to get other people to create virtue, we have to ask them to help us do it. Okay. I think I may have mentioned before about when I first went to Singapore, there was a, a young man who had, uh, had had a brain tumor and he came to, to me for help. And I wrote to my teacher and asked, what practices can he do? And Rinpoche sent back some practices. I gave them to this young man, uh, and but he, you know, and I said, I'll teach you how to do them, but he wasn't interested, even though he had a brain tumor and had, had surgery for that. He didn't want to do the practices. So the way I got him to, to create some merit was by saying that I wanted to do um, animal liberation. And would he take me around. So he got the different animals and then we went to different ponds and so on and liberated the animals and, you know, did some chanting and, and recitation of, of different verses at that time. So uh, that was how I, um, what do you say, manipulated him to create virtue. That, that was good manipulation though, I think. Yeah, usually manipulation is awful. But in his case, 
you know, it, it was the way to do it. And he quite enjoyed, you know, he's very happy to take me places to, to do, to do this practice, but to do a, a, a meditation practice alone, he wasn't so interested. Okay. So it's good to do the virtue ourself and to encourage others to do it. In the, the situation with Rupa Rinpoche, I was feeling discouraged in the sense that I, uh, you know, starting a monastery is a really big project, and it involves a lot of things that I had absolutely no knowledge about, like real estate, taking loans, uh, septic systems, water systems, um, uh, things with the government, permitting things with the government. I mean, it involved a lot of stuff I, I didn't know. And so I really wanted other people to help. And in addition, you know, to start training people to have other people's ideas how to do this. Um, but the, nobody was available. They all had their own thing. Pro, virtu, they were doing virtuous projects, you know. Um, and so I was questioning, should I do this or not? Um, or should I just let it go because all the causes and conditions aren't coming together? And that's when he, he said to me, you know, you go do it alone. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It was more of, uh, okay, you know, jump off the cliff and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sometimes in samsara, in samsara, we are always in a free fall. We think we are on stable ground and everything around us is secure, predictable, controllable. In actual fact, nothing is secure, predictable, and controllable. Okay? Because things change in every nanosecond, depending upon external conditions, internal conditions, previously created karma. Yeah. So nothing is sure. So sometimes we just have to say, let's give this a try and see what happens. Yeah. And you, you know, because anyway, we're in free fall. If you look, if you look at samsara as something that's constantly changing and under the control of ignorance, anger, and attachment, then we are always in free fall. Yeah. We're never on stable ground. So if we're always in free fall, then let's adjust our mind to be happy when we're in free fall, instead of deluding ourselves, thinking that we're going to work real hard and get everything to be secure and pinned down and predictable. Okay? Because it's like working for what's impossible instead of accustomizing our mind with what is. 
Okay. So, you know, that was just, he said, just, you know, go ahead, do it yourself. He didn't say it in that turn of voice, like, you know, oh, yeah, it's no big thing. Yeah, just go ahead and open the monastery by yourself. It's it's easy. You don't have any money. You don't have any skill. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, I think he he saw something, Yeah, even though he didn't know me very well at all, not the, that I know of. But um, yeah, so uh, so I went ahead slowly, and you know tried this and tried that and tried the other things, and some things didn't work out, and some things, like I said before, you know, uh, had my tail between my legs, like a scolded dog, um, but then. Anyway, what are you going to do in samsara? <laughs> yeah? Sit and feel sorry for yourself the whole time? Yeah, I was pretty good at that. Yeah? That was the easy way out. I mean, I was really good at self-pity. Yeah? And as you know, I'm very good at complaining. So I could continue those things, no problem. And that I can do without anybody else's help. Yeah, I can do those very well by myself. Thank you. Okay. So those were the questions. So we, um, last time we were talking about uh, steadfastness. We Previous time we had talked about aspiration, having interest in something, then inspiring to do it, and that being one of the first uh, aspects or factors of um, of joyous effort, and the second one, steadfastness, which involved steadfastness isn't just oh I started something I'm going to do it finish it. Steadfastness is before you commit to do something, you evaluate the action. You know, what is being asked of you, your ability to do it and complete it, the time it requires if you have that time. So steadfastness has all this stuff you do before you become steadfast. But once you commit to doing something or promise to do do something, then you complete it. You don't give up partway just, you know, because you stubbed your toe or because things get hard or, you know, because you you fell down and, uh, yeah, (laughs) knocked your head again and bruised your nose again. Yeah. No, you keep going. Okay. (laughs) The first time I did this was right before... Um, we, had, we had an appointment with His Holiness about, uh, you know, interview for the book. And on the way there, you know, I tripped and I just went clunk on the asphalt, walked into uh, the private, you know, the office. They didn't notice anything. Um, she patched me up, with the, you know, 
and then uh, went in to see his holiness and he took one look at me and said, what happened to you? <laughs> no, I can't do that in front of his holiness. No, you know, I, there was no chance to go back and clean up and blah, blah, blah. It's you're there at the office and you better stay there because if you aren't there when it's your turn, your turn is gone. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so steadfastness, you commit to something, you stick with it. Yeah. So especially when we take precepts, we should have that that attitude. Yeah, because we're taking the precepts for life. Of course, you know, if somebody's really unhappy or something happens, they can return them. But we should as much as possible, you know, be steadfast in the precepts and don't have that corner of our mind that says, well, yeah, it's good for now, but, 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 you know, if somebody really nice walks in the room, uh, you know, or whatever it is that will distract you, okay? But to, to really have a uh, convinced mind. And how did we get that convinced mind? Because we thought about it well beforehand. Yeah. So we find sometimes people who have what I call ordination fever. Yeah, and they want to get ordained ASAP, you know, immediately. And they've got to get ordained. And you uh, kind of try and, and tell them, you know, it's good. Get a good foundation first. Yeah, check out these different things. Find a teacher that you trust first. Find out which Buddhist tradition you want to practice first. You know, just these, to me, things that are very obvious. Yeah, but for many people, they aren't. It's just, you know, oh, you know, I want to be a Buddhist monastic. But, yeah, which is, of course, it's a virtuous idea, but they don't really know what they're asking. Yeah. And so to do all that examination, set that firm foundation beforehand. And then when you take the precepts, it becomes, you know, you're just fulfilling something that you have cultivated for a long time. Yeah. So it, uh, whereas when you have ordination fever, you, you, you know, you're really standing on water which means you're going to sink into the water. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my experience is sometimes when you get these people with ordination fever um, and you try and slow them down, they get really mad at you. Yeah. So this, this could be one reason. Remember we were talking in Vinaya class why uh, the seniors sometimes don't train the, the juniors because the juniors, you know, are stubborn and don't want to hear anything and don't, you know, interpret everything as being told what to do. And so this could be one reason for it. You just say something, you try and help somebody in there. But I want to get ordained right away. 
and they won't listen. I sometimes wonder if I was like that. <laughs> but, yeah, because I, yeah, I knew fairly soon I wanted to ordain, and I went for it. I think the saving grace was that my teacher told me to wait, and I had the sense to listen to him. Yeah, and then that cleared away a lot of obstacles. Okay, so um, verse 48, where we left off, if I, uh, well, for, end of 47 says, but once I have started, I must not withdraw. Okay, so once we've checked out the circumstances, committed ourselves, then we don't back out. So if I do, then this habit will continue in other lives, and wrongdoing and misery will increase. Okay, so what's the result of committing ourselves to Dharma practice or to taking precepts or to, uh, you know, taking the bodhisattva vow? And then, uh, yeah, you withdraw and say it's too hard or whatever. Then it starts a habit of just continually doing this. So it can be a, a very good thing in our meditation to look back. Uh, in our lives and and kind of assess, uh, you know, at what times in my life have I started things and then backed out and withdrawn, and why have I? And then when you see why we've withdrawn, then we can see, oh, okay, here's some areas that I have to strengthen so that I don't do so, you know, withdraw in the future. Okay, so it's good. Look, look over. You know, when you were growing up, and uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is I, uh, I was playing flute in in um, in middle school and high school, yeah. And when uh, we used to sit in order of how good you are, and somebody who was a grade under me challenged me for my seat. And I worked real hard, and I did very well, except I didn't repeat the passage, although it had a repeat sign. She did very well, but she repeated the passage. So she got my seat, and she was a grade younger than me. So I just got very discouraged. <laughs> Now, so, yeah, what's going on there? Competitive mind, yeah, that thinks my self-worth depends on what other people think of me, as illustrated by where I sit. Okay? And when I fail, instead of continuing to do that because I liked music or because they needed the second seat or whatever, yeah, I just got discouraged. Okay, now what will happen? I mean, you, you look at that and you see different aspects of yourself. And, okay, is this a habit I want to continue in my life? You know? 
where, what will happen if I'm always there, you know, worried about what other people think about me and competing with them. And then when I lose, yeah, I didn't drop out immediately. It took me a little bit, but eventually I did. Yeah. Then, then what happens? Uh, so you see what you need to, to work on. Unfortunately, I didn't have the Dharma at that time. But, yeah, but, um, you know, now it's good for us to check up and learn and then see what, what to work on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, other actions at the time of its fruition, yeah, will be weak and will not be accomplished. So, you know, even if I get some result of having started something good, you know, the uh, the, res- the fruition of it is going to be weak, and I probably will get discouraged again, yeah, or whatever it is. Okay, so then 49 says, self-confidence should be applied to wholesome actions. Yeah, many people are self-confident about unwholesome actions. Yeah, I can, you know, pull off this drug deal. Or like this guy who who just shot so many people in, uh, in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, at a supermarket, you know, just went in the parking lot, shot, went into it. The store shot 10 people dead, a bunch of people injured. Yeah, and it was racist, done with a racist thing. This guy had planned for months in advance. Yeah, he had studied other um, mass shootings. He had practiced, he had scouted out the grocery store and the parking lot. So he was very well prepared. Yeah, so he, and he had a lot of confidence he could pull this off. He had body armor, you know, and uh, a um, military-style weapon and pistols and the whole nine yards. So he had confidence, he practiced, he was determined, and the big problem was it was non-virtuous. Okay? So the idea is to develop those same qualities but apply them to virtuous activities. Yeah, because what happened to him? Yeah, he was going to kill himself. When the cops came in two minutes, thank goodness. That really saved the day. And he when he saw the cops, he pointed the one of the guns at himself. But the cops tackled him, yeah, and arrested him. Eighteen years old. Yeah. So he cut off 10 people's lives, traumatized this whole black community. And at 18 years old, completely destroyed his own life, even though he wasn't physically injured in that. You know, this guy's never going to get out of prison. Yeah. So this kind of thing... You know, it's 
It's one thing to develop certain qualities, but we have to make sure we apply them to virtuous activities. So we've got to learn to discern what is virtue and what's non-virtue. If we can't do that, then we're going to use our abilities to create the cause of suffering for self and others. It's really a tragedy. You know, 18 years old, to totally ruined his own life. Yeah. And these things happen every day. I've heard many examples of them. Yeah. So self-confidence should be applied to wholesome actions, the overcoming of disturbing conceptions, and my ability to do this. So where do we develop self-confidence? To do wholesome actions, to overcome our afflictions, and to have self-confidence in our ability to do these two things, to do wholesome actions and to overcome our afflictions. Okay? And there, thinking I alone shall do it is the self-confidence of action. And so having built up that previous self-confidence that I have the ability to do it, then we think, okay, I alone can do it. And then we go do it. And that's the self-confidence of action. Now, how do we further that? Verse 50, powerless, their minds disturbed, people in this world are unable to benefit themselves. Therefore, I shall do it for them. Since unlike me, these beings are incapable. And we have to understand this verse correctly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So ordinary sentient beings, their minds are overwhelmed by afflictions. So in that way, you know, their minds are disturbed and they become powerless to create the causes of happiness because the mind's overrun by afflictions. Yeah? And they can't even benefit themselves, let alone benefit others. And, you know, this is what, you know, what's the war in Ukraine all about? You know? I mean, this verse is talking about Putin and his cronies, powerless, their minds disturbed. Yeah, Putin and his cronies are unable to benefit themselves. Yeah. And then a war starts. And then that is activating the non-virtue in other people who get involved in fighting the war to resist the Russian aggression. And then we get all sorts of people jumping in with their own kind of non-virtue. Okay. But what this is saying is we look around in the world and we see that people want happiness, but they don't know how to create the cause for it. And they don't really know how to benefit themselves. So therefore, I will engage and try and do what I can to help them to create virtue. Okay. Because, you know, unlike me, these beings are incapable. Me, now this sound, this could sound very arrogant. 
Yeah, it's not meant as arrogance. It's not like, well, I'm a Dharma practitioner, so I'm very capable and create the cause of happiness, but you poor slob are overcome by ignorance, anger, and attachment, and I feel so sorry for you, poor slob. Uh, So I'm going to... uh, you know, create some virtue and dedicate for it for you or get you involved in something that is virtuous because I feel sorry for you. That's not what this verse is saying, okay? Yeah. So here we have to discern the difference between compassion for people and pity. Yeah, they're very different. Yeah. With compassion, we see ourselves on equal footing with the other person. Okay. And Shantideva has this beautiful analogy um, of how the hand, when the foot steps on a thorn, the hand pulls it out. Yeah. And the hand does not do some big trip of, oh, God, you stupid foot. Again, you stepped on a a thorn. How many times have I told you to look at where you're walking and you don't listen? And so now I, the great and glorious hand, am arriving like Superman in to save you and pull the thorn out of your foot so that you don't die from sepsis or some, or tetanus. Yeah. And remember that I helped you because now you owe me something. Okay, so that's not a bodhisattva's attitude. Yeah, that's an attitude of arrogance, isn't it? Total arrogance. So genuine self-confidence, genuine compassion for others doesn't fall into that. Yeah, It's we are equal with others. And again, as Shanti Deva says somewhere in the book, suffering is to be eliminated. It doesn't matter whose it is. So somebody else is suffering. I happen to be there. I can do something. I do it. It's no big trip. It's not, look at me. Yeah. Yeah. Can can the city council give me an award and a little plaque stating how good I am and then take a picture of me for the local newspaper? Yeah, you, you, you've seen those things, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, no, that that's that's not a bodhisattva's attitude. The the credit, the glory is is not our purpose at all. Okay, so when it's saying that that people are powerless and incapable, we are not having pity on them. Yeah, pity. Yeah, unlike his compassion is equal. Yeah, then pity's like this. I'm up here. And you poor jerk. Yeah, you just can't get your life together at all. So I'm going to help you. 
So that is not bodhicitta. We do not look at other people around us in samsara and say, well, I'm so superior to you because I've met the Dharma and you haven't and you just like botch everything up and create non-virtue. No, we are not like that, okay? So the difference between compassion and pity, and do some contemplation about this so that you can tell the difference in your own mind when you have one and when you have the other. And what kind of situations do you have one in? What kind of situations do you have the other in? Okay. Then also we have to discriminate. Yeah. What is arrogance or self-importance? They use the term self-importance here, which I think is a good, a good term. Yeah. Um, because some translations use pride. Pride, there's two different kinds of pride. So the word pride can be very confusing. Sometimes they play on it, in, like in the, for the upcoming verses, they play the pride that is non-virtuous and the pride that is uh, self-confidence. Yeah, But I think it's easier to just have two different words. So if, if we have self-confidence, yeah, then we have no need to be arrogant or proudful or self-important. Yeah. Because when, when we have self-confidence, we feel good about ourselves. That doesn't mean we do everything perfectly. It means that we're able to accept ourselves. So when we do something good, we accept it. We feel happy about that. When we mess up, instead of getting discouraged, we learn from the situation, and then we go on. Yeah. So that kind of, of self-confidence is to be cultivated. Self-importance is rooted, is based on low self-esteem. When we don't believe in ourselves, when we're constantly criticizing ourselves, then we need other people to praise us. We need other people to tell us who we are, that we're okay. Yeah. And that need, I mean, it's a very strong, it can become a very strong emotional need where we then... Uh, it's kind of the fuel that gets us into unhealthy relationships because we depend, you know, there's, there's one person or a group of people that think we're wonderful. We become dependent on them and then we get trapped in uh, trying to do what we think they want us to be so that they will continue to praise us and tell us we're wonderful. Okay. Do you see how con contorted that is? Yeah. And, and getting their praise doesn't satisfy the whole inside of ourselves because we've all gotten tons of praise before. And we're never satisfied. We never feel completely good about ourselves, no matter how many accolades we get. 
Why? Because we've never learned how to accept ourselves. Yeah, to own our mistakes and learn from them instead of getting discouraged and to recognize our good qualities and use them to benefit others. Yeah, so that's the work we have to do. Mm-hmm. And some, uh, you know, sometimes we see people who are very arrogant and it's, it's really uncomfortable to be around them um, because they're very, sometimes not very nice people. Yeah, but when you can see through what they're doing, yeah, that what they're really trying to say, despite all the arrogance, is, you know, please tell me I'm okay. Please tell me I'm worthwhile. Okay, so you look at somebody like, you know, some of the politicians who are huffing and puffing about how wonderful they are and tearing other people apart and lying, what are they really saying? I don't believe in myself. I need other people to prop me up. Yeah? Because when we really have self-confidence, we don't need that stuff. Okay? And this is what I saw so uh, so clearly, and I've told this story many times, but, you know, at a conference in, in uh, Irvine, California, when His Holiness was on a panel of experts, and, uh, and there was a question from the audience directed, you know, uh, to the panel, and they all turned to His Holiness and said, what do you think? And he sat there and he said, I don't know. Yeah. And the whole auditorium was so quiet. Yeah. The expert of experts said, I don't know. And the thing was, His Holiness was completely comfortable was saying, I don't know. Yeah. And then he turned to the other people on the panel. He said, what do you people think? Yeah. And somebody who, who believes in themselves can do that. Yeah. They, they have no need to compete with the other people on the panel to appear greater and stronger and so forth so that they believe in themselves. Yeah. He could just say, yeah, I don't know, and what do you people think? Yeah. Whereas somebody who has low self-esteem, what are they going to do? Yeah. You poo-poo the question, make the person who asked the question look stupid, change the topic, make up an answer, even though you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. We do something to cover it up. Yeah. And, you know, so what's feeding that, you know, if, if, we do, if we do something to cover it up, it's, what's feeding it is the lack of self-esteem. So we become self-important and like, 
well, we change the topic and make up some kind of answer that using all sorts of big words that nobody understands. And then we go, look how brilliant I am. But inside, yeah, inside we know we're fully baloney. Okay. So, yeah. So discern difference between compassion and pity, between self-confidence and self-importance, between genuine humility and low self-esteem. Yeah? Because genuine in, in Buddhist practice, genuine humility is a virtue. Yeah. In American culture, humility is like, you know, yeah, oh, if I'm humble, then nobody's going to think I'm wonderful. And I've got to pretend to be magnificent to sell myself in everything I do. You know, and social media has really uh, increased that that need. You know, before it was just you apply for a job and you make write out an application, go in. Now it's not just regarding jobs. Yeah, the dating apps. You make yourself into some fantastic sounding person that somebody else is going to look at your profile on the dating app and go. You know, and you're going to get so many calls that then you feel, oh, I'm so worthwhile. Yeah. Or you, you know, make up, you know, forget dating apps, just your, you know, your Facebook page or whatever kind of page you have where you tell all about your life to the whole world indiscriminately. Yeah. And you just put it all out there uh, because it makes you look important and impressive to people. Then that's that's kind of sad, you know. If that's the way you get your your self esteem by the number of these versus the number of these by people who do not know you, by people who are judging this phony baloney personage that you have put on Facebook that you attached your name to but is not a genuine description of who you are. Yeah. So this is this is something that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we do not have personal Facebook uh, and other accounts like that here because it just it messes up your mind and you can see with kids big time yeah young kid especially teenagers yeah remember when you were a teenager and your whole self-esteem depended on what your friends said not your parents not your teachers not people who have some wisdom but your friends yeah who are just as confused as you are, but we're all 16 together, so we're all almost omniscient. And we (laughs) evaluate ourselves by what they think of us. Yeah. So 
uh, yeah. So to differentiate genuine humility with low self-esteem, and then to cover up the low self-esteem, we have self-importance. Whereas when we have genuine humility, then we have self-confidence. We don't need to cover stuff up. Okay. 51. Even if others are doing inferior tasks, why should I sit here doing nothing? Oh, actually, I can th- I can think of lots of reasons why I sh- should be able to sit here and do nothing. But that's not exactly what Shantideva is asking, is it? You know, why should I sit here and do nothing? Well, Shantideva, because... You know, I just don't feel like doing anything else. And I'm only going to do what I feel like. <laughs> yeah. That's another tricky phase, isn't it? I don't feel like it. And, you know, we say it to other people, but we say it to ourselves. Yeah. Yesterday I was... You know, there's one part of volume nine that, you know, again, really difficult. And nah, nah, nah. like, huh, I don't, you know, I kind of have the material I need to do, but I just don't feel like doing it. <laughs> you know, so put off, put off, put off. And then I said, just do it, children, and then you'll feel so much better after it's done. And it's true. Yeah. But the the thing of, I don't feel like it, which makes you feel more lousy than you felt before. Isn't that strange? You know, I don't feel like it, as if doing that thing is going to give us some pain, and not doing it will just, I'm sitting around in leisure, distracting myself with some other thing. That's going to be pleasurable. But in actual fact, after I distract myself for a while and the thing still isn't done, then I feel worse. I don't feel better. Whereas if I sit down and do it, it doesn't take that long and it's done. And then I say, oh, good. Do you have that? anybody else have that problem? <laughs> No. Yes, you have it. Yeah. Oh. In Singapore, they allow you to not feel like something? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so even if others are doing inferior tasks, why should I sit there doing nothing? I do not do those tasks because of self-importance. It would be best for me to have no such pride. Okay? So whatever jobs I am doing, if I am doing something virtuous, I should not be doing those things because of self-importance. Yeah? And if I do, then that's totally inappropriate. Yeah? Like, those people do inferior jobs, but I am entitled to sit around and do nothing But when I do do something, yeah, then I am quite proud of myself. Yeah, I'm better than those other people. So sometimes we may do something that's really not 
so important, but you know, those other people, they're, they're doing like lower class jobs. Yeah, so I'm better. I'm not doing a lower class job. Personally speaking, I think the way our society dissolves, uh, um, discerned or discriminates between high class jobs and low class jobs and who is worthy of more money versus who is not worthy of that money. I think that whole way of discerning things is really very unfair. Yeah. Because the, the people who do what other people often consider lower class jobs are the people who keep things going. And this is what we saw so dramatically during uh, when COVID was rampant. The people who are the grocery store clerks who, who put products on the shelf, the gas station attendants, the garbage collectors, the home health aides. Yeah. So people who normally, uh, you know, people would go, oh, well, they just have this kind of you know, you don't need to be educated to have that kind of job, whereas I have a college degree, I am educated, so I can get higher class jobs than those people. If you look, you know, who sustained the society during COVID? It wasn't the people with college degrees. Yeah. If they had a good job, they bought another house in the countryside and said, ciao, bye-bye, you guys deal with it. It was the people who have the quote-quote low-class jobs that everybody was dependent on. And those people had a much higher death rate from COVID than other people. And yet they showed up for their jobs. So... I don't think it's very fair that, you know, they don't get paid according to, you know, what they did to keep society going at that time. And also sometimes, you know, you may have some, you may know rocket science, yeah, but you don't know how to do simple things. Yeah, very simple things that are sometimes considered not unimportant jobs. Uh, People with, you know, high-status jobs in corner offices, they don't even know how to do those things. So I was uh, was quite uh, shocked one day. My, My brother is a doctor. You know, and you guys know doctors and, well, anyway, um, if you have a relative who's a doctor, you you know. Um, Okay, so he once said to me, you know, that he didn't, you know, he realizes that many other things that people don't get paid very much to do, he can't do. He doesn't know how to do them. Yeah. And he even, and this is remarkable for him, yeah, for my brother, said that he didn't feel that it was right that he got paid more than them. I don't know that he always holds that idea, but at least for one moment when he did. You know? 
I thought that was quite remarkable because it's true. It's true. Yeah. So, uh, so whatever job we're doing, we shouldn't make a big deal about it. We're just doing our part. Okay. 52. When crows, I like this verse, when crows encounter a dying snake, they will act as though they were eagles. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Likewise, if my self-confidence is weak, I shall be injured by the slightest downfall. <laughs> okay? So, crows, yeah. They're, the crows are crows, you know? They're, they're not spectacular birds in, in how everybody sees them. But when they see a dying snake, and, you know, and, they're, and crows and bird, you know, eagles and these big birds are afraid of snakes, then they act like, you know, well, we're not afraid of snakes. We're going to get them. But the snake's dying anyway. Yeah. So they aren't really very courageous. <laughs> They're just faking it. Yeah. So likewise, yeah. And so why did they do that? Because they don't have real self-confidence, you know, and they just want to, you know, pretend. Likewise, if my self-confidence is weak, yeah, then, uh, you know, I'm going to commit a lot of downfalls in my precepts, and I'm going to make a lot of mistakes and botch things up. So I shall be injured by the slightest downfall. Yeah. So what it's saying is instead of being like a crow who in a very easy situation pretends to be very powerful, yeah, but but actually lacks confidence. And so when they're just in a normal situation, they can't even keep it together to do that. And so thus they have low self-confidence, you know, when they, because they have low self-confidence. So we should not be like that. Yeah. When, when uh, whether things are easy, whether things are difficult, you know, if we can contribute, we do it. Yeah. And that helps build our self-confidence. Whereas when we're always under the, the hangover of self-disparagement, then, you know, we feel we give up before we even try. Yeah. Like, this is just too hard. I can't do it. Forget it. You know, keeping this precept too hard. Yeah, this this can't do it. Okay. So we're injured by the slightest downfall. So 53. How can those who out of faint-heartedness have given up trying to find liberation because of this deficiency? Yet even the greatest obstacle will find it hard to overcome one with a firm mind. Okay, so somebody who is faint-hearted, yeah, who doesn't try, who, who, you know, is too engrossed in putting themselves down to, to note their, their own good qualities. How, how are those people 
going to attain liberation. Yeah, because they're going to keep telling every step along the path, they're going to say, I can't do it, it's too hard, I can't do it, it's too hard. Yeah, and find some reason why, you know, the goal is too high, the path is too long and too difficult, and I lack the qualities. Okay, so that kind of person's not going to find liberation. But for somebody with a firm mind, who's willing at least to give it a try, and even if it doesn't go so well, they'll hang in there and try and work out the problems. Yeah. Even with that person, even there's a big obstacle, it won't be able to overcome them because they have some stick-to-itness, stick-to-itiveness. Okay. 54, therefore, with a steady mind, I shall overcome all downfalls. It shouldn't be falls. It should be, I shall overcome all downfalls. So with a steady, self-confident mind, even some precepts are difficult to keep, I will slowly work at them and, you know, overcome those downfalls. If I am defeated by a downfall, my wish to vanquish the three realms will become a joke. Okay, so if I am defeated, you know, we we all make mistakes. Okay, we all make mistakes. But if we're defeated by our mistakes, then our wish to attain liberation is like a joke because we're just going to keep being reborn in samsara, in the three realms of samsara. Okay, here, it's interesting when it says, uh, you know, uh, it should be downfall. And downfall refers specifically to precepts. I mean, of course, it includes the, the ten non-virtues. Yeah. But it, it also means, specific, you know, when we, uh, when we uh, transgress precepts, we create a downfall. Yeah. So if uh, with a steady mind, I shall overcome those those obstacles that keep me from keeping my precepts well. Because if I am, you know, defeated, and here especially the word defeated, you know, if you if you break a rule precept, you are defeated and you lose your ordination completely. Yeah. So especially if you're defeated by that kind of downfall, then the wish to uh, vanquish the three realms will become a joke. Mm. So, you know, in in one way it's saying, you know, don't break your root precepts because it's, you know, creating a downfall is just, uh, yeah, it really is a big problem. Okay. and the thing is, if you know the precepts well and you know what are the criteria for a full downfall and what are the criteria with which you've created an infraction but you haven't g- created the full transgression, yeah, then you can sometimes modify, if you can't control your affliction, at least you modify your actions so you don't do the 
you don't break the the precept with all four factors complete. Yeah. So, but you need to to learn the precepts to do that because otherwise you don't understand what the criteria are for uh, the four branches of of uh, transgression. Okay. So 55, I will conquer everything, and nothing at all shall conquer me. So that sounds uh, arrogant, but Shantideva isn't saying it that way. He's saying it through having gone through this whole process of dealing with uh, discouragement and wanting to give up and not having self-confidence and dealing with it by reflecting on all these verses, then he has more self-confidence now. So he's saying, I will conquer everything and nothing at all will conquer me. And that's the kind of attitude bodhisattvas have. That doesn't mean bodhisattvas can do everything perfectly. Yeah, it just means that they have confidence and they're going to try and do their best which will increase their confidence so that in the future they can keep doing more and more and perfect it. Okay. When we engage in things, we think we have to do everything absolutely, totally perfect. Yeah. And if we don't, then failure. I um, was once talking to a friend who, when we were talking about, you know, success and failure and what it does to your mind. And he told me the story of one of his friends who was a professor in a university uh, science department. And this professor was in charge of evaluating applicants for the graduate program. And the professor told him that in evaluating these applicants, uh, he he looks not so much at what they have accomplished, which is like they what they want to brag about, or you know make sure that the guy knows about, but how they handle it when they don't succeed. And because if you're a scientist, you know doing lab experiments and so on, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, you're going to have theories and set up experiments and they aren't going to turn out the way you were hoping they would. Okay, so he evaluates people according to how they handle their failure. Yeah, and who just throws up their hands and says, I give up or I'm hopeless. And who says, okay, I learned something from that. Let's revise the experiment or let's try something different and go ahead. And that really, you know, when that person said that to me, you know, I thought, yeah, that really is a good way to evaluate people. Yeah, because it, it shows you what, what they really have inside, you know. Okay. So I will conquer everything and nothing at all shall conquer me. So even I fall flat on my face, I'm going to get up and learn from it. Okay. I will not step over barbed wire 
<laughs> Again, when it's, you know, this far off the ground, I will not do that. Well, I will, but next time I will be more careful. <laughs> now, if we stay at that same place again, yeah, but you have to walk down and around, and it takes so long, and I just want the shortcut. Yeah, I don't know why they have barbed wire, because even the dogs can get through it. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense. But I, a child of the lion-like conqueror, should remain self-confident in this way. Okay? So the, the, the Buddha is often called, you know, lion-like. Um, and his speech is called the, the lion's roar. Yeah, because it's so powerful and it's true. So I am a child of the Buddha, meaning I'm a bodhisattva. I want to go, you know, uh, at least I'm a bodhisattva wannabe, okay? I'm a fake bodhisattva. Well, not, you can't even be a fake bodhisattva. You're a bodhisattva wannabe. Yeah? So I, a child of the lion-like conqueror, should remain self-confident in this way. Okay, but don't ask me to cook lunch because I'm going to burn everything. Okay, 56. Whoever has self-importance is destroyed by it. Whoa, that's a strong statement. Don't you think whoever has self-importance is destroyed by it? Can you think of some people who have self-importance? We just had uh, the election result. Um, Madison Cawthorn. Remember that uh, 26-year-old kid who was a congressperson from North Carolina? Remember him? So he, you know, he got elected. He was a fresh congressperson. And he started criticizing everybody and everything, and uh, he was defeated in the primaries. So whoever has self-importance is destroyed by it. That really talks about his, his situation, you know? He went in there and, you know, made up lies. Although, you know, it makes you really wonderful, you know, wonder what was Grassley doing, you know, all those 70 and 80-year-old friends who he, uh, or representatives and senators who he said used to have orgies and would would uh, smoke croca- uh, crack cocaine in front of him and invited him to attend. Yeah, he said this publicly, a freshman Congress person, about all the seniors, you know, so, yeah, and then, you know, and then he did a few other things. He, uh, tw- tw- twice, he tried to take, uh, at different occasions, loaded guns through TSA um, check at the airport. Twice, he's got, he got busted for driving with a revoked license. <laughs> You know, and he was just continuing on this path, um, acting like this. 
So he kind of, you know, dug his own grave in terms of Congress. Okay, so inflated by the disturbing conception of my self-importance. Yeah. There's a few others who seem to be acting like that, too. He he was just a, a real case study. He did it par excellence. Yeah. But there's a few others, you know. Marjorie and and uh what's Gates Gates's, you know? Matt Gates, yeah. You know, they're 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 coming along pretty well. And <laughs> Inflated by the disturbing conception of my self-importance, I shall be led by it to the lower realms. Yeah. So I'm self-importance because I want high status. What do I get? Lower rebirth. It destroys the joyous festival of being human. I shall become a slave eating the food of others. So now he's talking about some of the disadvantages of self-importance. Okay, lower rebirth. The happiness that we could experience as a human being, doing things for others, it destroys that. In their next life, we become a slave, a servant, somebody, you know, in the lower... um, lower caste or lower class, yeah, eating the food of others, the food that, that the rich and powerful throw away. We go through the garbage dumps and pick out. All of this is a result of, of self-importance. Okay, 58 continues with the disadvantages of self-importance. Stupid, ugly, feeble, and everywhere disrespected. Yeah, so this is the result that is experienced in the next life. Yeah, we're self-important this life. I'm so bright, I'm so intelligent, I'm so attractive, I'm so rich. I can do anything, I can fix anything, I understand everything. Yeah, I am the, you know, I understand. What what was it he said? I understand the medicine behind COVID better than anybody else. You know, this kind of things. Okay, so stupid, ugly, feeble, and everywhere disrespected. That's a result of being arrogant in this life. Future lives were like that. Tough people, bloated by conceit, are also counted among the self-important. Tell me, what is more pathetic than this? Yeah, and when... You, when I was talking before, when you can see through what they're doing and that they're really saying, you know, I just want somebody to tell me I'm an okay person. I want somebody to love me. Yeah, but they're acting like this big, powerful whatever. That's really sad, isn't it? You know, I find that kind of thing very, very sad. Yeah. So tough people, bloated by conceit, are also counted among the self-important. Tell me, what is more pathetic than this? 
Okay, so uh, we're out of time. One or two questions, if you have any. I just want to confirm in this last verse, 58, mm-hmm. um, the translation I'm using has these ascetics puffed up with com- uh, conceit. So is this spiritual practitioners that are, I think, what I don't, you had a different translation of that. Okay. Of the last two lines of 58. Of 58. Here. Those counted among the self-important tell me what is more pathetic than this. And yours is about ascetic. Yeah, about ascetics. Sometimes, um, my bring, read the whole verse. Or feeble-minded, ugly, without strength, the butt and laughing stock of everyone. These ascetics puffed up with conceit. If these you call the proud, then tell me who are wretched. Read it the last two lines more slowly. These ascetics puffed up with conceit. If these you call the proud, then tell me who are wretched. Okay, so if you... Okay, so those ascetics who are puffed up, if you say they're the proud the proud people, then who's wretched? In other words, they they're the wretched ones. Okay, my guess is, or how I would read that, is some people become very arrogant by being ascetic. Yeah. Look at how ascetic I am. I, yeah. So it could it could be that, or it could be that somebody was arrogant in a pro, in a previous life, so they become. They wouldn't become a. Maybe in, when it says ascetic, they mean impoverished. I don't know. Do other people have another translation of that verse? Tough people. Yeah, here it it says tough people. It seems the translations are are quite different. Yeah. Does anybody have... Which one do you have? The Padma... Yeah. Does anybody have... um, Alan and Vesna's. The Fedor Strack um, translation also uses ascetics mm-hmm. with the Geltzap commentary, but he has a footnote with ascetics that says heroes. So I don't know if that's how he's reading whatever is in the Tibetan. <laughs> yeah, but if there's nothing in the Tibetan, sometimes when you get this kind of difference in translation, it's according to the commentary people are using, and the commentators read things, you know, give examples differently. What does that one say? Um, Wallace, Ellen Wallace says, they are despised everywhere, puffed up with pride and miserable. If they are included among the self-confident, they are pitiable. Say, of what kind are they? Then he's got a footnote saying, because that's the translation of the Sanskrit and the Tibetan is different. Um, He says, inflated with afflictive pride, pride leads them to miserable states of existence, and it spoils the celebration of human life. Uh, They will become slaves who eat others' morsels, stupid, ugly, pathetic, and despised everywhere. If ascetics inflated with pride are also included among the self-confident, tell me, who else is so pitiable? And the Tibetan does have, um, it does say uh, asceticism. It says katupchen, those possessing those who practice um, asceticism mm. or or hermits, 
the Tibetan does have. Okay. Should read the last two lines there again. Uh, if ascetics inflated with pride are also included among the self-confident, tell me, who else is so pitiable? Okay. So that could mean practitioners who are ascetic that are inflated with arrogance. Or it could uh, mean uh, ascetics from other traditions. Yeah. Because it's easy to, to uh, become kind of proud about one's level of, uh, of asceticism. That's why in the eight Mahayana precepts, you know, the dedication verse is about having uh, pure ethical conduct without conceit. Yeah, that's why that's in there, because it's very easy to... Look how ascetic I am. No, I don't want that chocolate cake. But you can give me the money, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay, let's dedicate.